All right. Well, Luke chapter four. I uh, I want to preface the the words this morning and introduce us to um, our subject. We have been in the Gospel of Luke now for a little while. We've entitled our certain salvation as we study the life of Jesus, uh, the man who is God, and we have been looking uh, at the. Christmas narrative, the birth narrative of Jesus, and we got to uh, Jesus's, um, the only episode we have of him as a child, and he's 12, and we moved on to Jesus's baptism, his temptation, and then we looked at, last week, his return to his hometown of Nazareth and his rejection by the people there, and that leads us into this morning's text. So by way of introduction, um, I would like to uh, talk about a special thing that's happening this year. Uh, in fact, uh, next month, the last day of the month is a special day. It's October 31st, and it's, I'm not talking about Halloween. I'm talking about the 500th anniversary of a young Augustinian monk and professor named Martin Luther. On that day, he posted his 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and little did he know, launched the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we are in that stream of Christian uh, thought and belief, the Protestants. Uh, we owe much of our understanding of God's word, our practice of worship to the courageous men and women who across Europe and beyond had a revolutionary idea. And the idea was a return to that which had been common in the church hundreds of years before, that God, through his word, is the only Supreme authority over the church, not the Pope, not church councils, and not tradition. It is the Bible, God's word, that is authoritative, not a supposedly infallible Pope or even helpful and credible councils and creeds. It is God's word alone. It was this belief, this belief that the scriptures were, are, are sufficient on their own to guide and direct Christians that overturned centuries of the weeds that had been growing in the cracks of the church that had choked out the pure word of God, it came to be called sola scriptura, scripture alone. Several years ago, Pastor Ron preached through a series on the five solas of the Reformation. You can find that on our, our website if you want to hear more about um, uh, that, those five solas. Um, and you can find that on our website under the sermons tab. Uh, These ideas slowly spread across Europe, and they crossed the channel into England. And a man named uh, William Tyndale uh, was inspired by Luther's ideas and began to read the Bible in the original language, not in the Latin Vulgate, the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. And he couldn't get enough. He couldn't stop reading it, and he couldn't stop talking about it. It seemed so fresh and alive compared to the dead traditions and the Latin mass of the church that he had grown up with. His fascination with reading the Bible caused a fellow scholar one time to blurt out, we were better be without God's law than the Pope's. Tyndale fired back, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. God did spare Tyndale's life for a time long enough to translate the New Testament from the original languages into everyday English so that any literate Briton 
including the plowboy in the field, could read the Bible for himself and understand it in his own heart language. 16,000 copies were smuggled into England from the mainland. Why were they smuggled? Because it was illegal to read and have the Bible in English. Think about that. It was illegal in an English-speaking country to have the Bible in English. Now, think about the app that you have right now. How many languages and versions do you have access to? Um, Think about the library right through that wall. Don't go through the wall, go through the door. There's a library in there that has all kinds of copies of God's Word. My office has tons of copies of God's Word. Your home has copies of God's Word everywhere. That is so commonplace, we don't even give it a second thought. Hotels have God's Word in the the, uh, drawer next to your bed. And yet it was illegal in England. Before Tyndale could finish the Old Testament, though, agents of the church and the crown found him in Belgium. He was tried, found guilty, strangled, and burned near Brussels. Before he died, he cried out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And they killed him. But only two years later, events pushed King Henry VIII to order this. Ye shall discourage no man from reading or hearing of the Bible, but shall expressly provoke, stir, and exhort every person to read the same as that which is the very lively word of God. Two years later, Tyndale's prayer was answered. The king of England's eyes had been opened. Bibles were then placed in every church. Can you imagine no Bibles in a church? No Bible in a church that could be read by the people. Not everyone liked this. One British duke remarked, I never read the scripture, nor never will read it. It was Mary in England afore the new learning came up. Yea, I would all things were as they had been in time past. Before all these people started reading the Bible. However, most of the people loved it. Six English Bibles were placed in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, crowds immediately thronging around those who could read loud enough to make themselves heard. So great was the excitement that priests complained of how, even during their sermons, lay people were reading the Bible aloud to each other. They'd never done it in English. So I don't know what that says about the sermon, if it was that boring, or if maybe the Bible's just more interesting than the guy standing up front. That possibly is the case. You see, the people perceived God's word as living and active. It was interesting. It was relevant. It was comforting and powerful. And as Village Bible Church Constitution states, it is the only divinely intended authority for the faith and practice of Christians. William Tyndale and men and women like him gave their lives because they believed that the Bible spoke God's words. That God's words are contained in, no, they are the Bible. God's word is the Bible. And so because of this, they were willing to defy the Pope. They were willing to go to gruesome deaths at a stake and be burned in front of people because they believed God's word. So we right now have a copy of God's word. I hope you're in Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses 31 through 44, and we, in our day, are going to stand together without fear of reprisal, and read God's word aloud. So please stand with me as a way to honor the reading of God's word from Luke 4. We're going to read verses 31 through 44. You follow along with me. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. 
And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day... He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Father, we thank you that we do have your word, that it is accessible to us, that we have books and study guides and versions Lord, we have freedom to read your word, to memorize your word, to proclaim your word. And Lord, help us to live out what your word says. As we sang this morning, Lord, take our intellects and use them how you would have them to be used. Not that we might look smart, but that we might be able to use the minds that you have given to us to understand your word and to tell it to others. So God, this morning... Uh, some of us are tired. Some of us are sick. Um, some of us are bored. I pray, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be here this morning in such a way that we would pay attention to your words. And, Lord, that I might not distract from that, but that your word would be supreme. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we see in verse 31 of our passage, we see a city named Capernaum. Last week, Jesus was in what town? You can cheat. It's in the Bible. Nazareth. Okay? He was in Nazareth and made his way to Capernaum. And I, I, I say this all the time, but I can't say it often enough, I don't think. These are not um, fake places. Okay? <laughs> this is not Hogsmeade. All right? This is not Narnia. This is not Edensmore. Okay? This is not Gondor. The, the, <laughs> these are real places. These are places that you can go, and some of you have been to these places and seen that what we have is a historical record of reality. We do not have a bunch of myths thrown together. We have God's word, and it is true. Verse 31 says, he went down to Capernaum. Uh, The reason it says that is because Nazareth is in the hills. It's about 1,200 feet above sea level, and Capernaum is about 700 feet below sea level. So it is a descent to get there. Uh, You'll see on the map here on the screen where Nazareth is uh, in the the hill country of Galilee. And to the east is the Sea of Galilee. It's not a sea, it's a lake, but, you know, tradition. 
uh, and Capernaum is right here on the north tip of the lake. So um, in a day, you could travel this route from Nazareth up the road, and you would actually join what was an international highway that went up to uh, Damascus and led to many other um, countries and areas that trade traveled uh, along. Capernaum is a, a small town um, in our estimation, maybe 600 to 1,500 residents. That's the guess based on the archaeology that's been done there, but is of great importance because of its location. We're going to find out later in the book of Luke that there was a tax, uh, tax table set up, and a man named Levi was there collecting taxes because there was a lot of commerce done on the lake. And then that intersected with the International Highway. And so you can, you can see how there would be, it would be a, a very important place because of the three most important words in real estate, which are location, location, location. Um, it was the last city before the, the road basically led north um, into more uh, unpopulated areas. Um, there's also a Roman garrison uh, that is in the area that we're going to find out uh, later on in Luke about a centurion who was based there. So it is one of the larger cities um, on the lake. Um, what we, we see uh, nowadays is, uh, this is a picture from the north um, of, uh, here is the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Okay, we're looking towards the south where the Jordan River would exit on the lake. And uh, Capernaum is just right here perched on the lake. It is right on the lake. You can see from the water how close the city is. And um, there are many ruins there. But you can just, I mean, it was a walk to the water. Um, it was uh, just a stone's throw in some places from where the lake was. Here are some of um, the, the diggings um, in Capernaum. Uh, what you see in the white stone that they've uh, reset up to some extent is a synagogue. Um, a Jewish synagogue. And then this is actually the town. And these are some of the remains of the uh, houses. Um, again, small town. Uh, many of the, most of the homes would have shared walls as the families expanded and grew. Um, everything was right there. The synagogue, the center of Jewish life, the lake where probably most of them derived their income and their occupations. Um, and the road would have been just to the north of this place. Uh, this is the 4th century synagogue, that white um, building uh, that some of you have, have been to and been in. Um, as they continue to dig around it, you know, everyone got excited. It's Capernaum. They figure out this is probably the place where Jesus was. They found a synagogue. This is probably the place where Jesus was. Um, they found out it's 4th century. And they're like, oh, everyone's all bummed, right? And like, oh, maybe Jesus stepped on this stone. Maybe he stepped on this stone. But then later on, they found... A, a different um, foundation, a different wall on the bottom of different stone, basalt. Stones are black stones underneath that are in the region. And w- almost with 100% certainty, this is the first century synagogue um, that Jesus would have spent so much time in. Um, the purpose is not to say, ooh, I feel some like shivers when I stand on this, but to say that this is, this is it. This is where it happened. This is the historical place where this um, went on. You can also see from uh, the air that the aliens have landed in Capernaum. Their spaceship is parked right here. Um, there is a very interesting uh, Roman Catholic church built over what is uh, very likely Peter's house. I mean, how, how, could it, how could they know it was Peter's house? Well, uh, it's not a big town. So you could probably like, close your eyes, throw a rock, and hit somebody's town, that's, somebody's home that's in the Bible. But um, they found a second century graffiti 
there they found the names of Jesus, the names of Peter on some of this. There was a Byzantine church built in the 5th century um, over this place. Whatever the case, um, this seems to be the place where Peter and Andrew and James and John um, had their fishing industry, which we're going to learn about next week, and where Jesus moved his headquarters to this place. Um, You'll see just how close this is um, to the water. There's also um, diggings over here you can see um, where, of course, they haven't dug up everything. Um, And there's more um, over on this side of the uh, archaeological dig as well. And this just I want you to to visualize this to see um, what's happening here as we get into the passage. All that is background to help you know where this is happening. Um, And point number one in your notes is that Jesus' teaching has astonishing authority. We'll see that in verses 31 and 32. Jesus' teaching has astonishing authority. Verse 31 says he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. It's probably identifying for the readers of this gospel who weren't from um, the land of Judea or Galilee, but were maybe Romans or Greeks in another part of the empire. And he was teaching them when? On the Sabbath. This is the first of five Sabbath events in the book of Luke. Luke is um, very keen to emphasize the Sabbath and what happens on the Sabbath. And so um, we see that uh, before in Nazareth, Jesus had uh, been invited to comment and read from the book of Isaiah on uh, the Sabbath day. And here he is in Capernaum and he's teaching on the Sabbath. And the reaction is what Luke wants us to notice here. There was always teaching in the synagogue on Sabbath. That's not remarkable at all. What is remarkable is that when they showed up, it wasn't just the same old, same old. Okay? They showed up and this man taught in a different way. Look at verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Word could also be translated message. Um, not like sermon message, but the message of his, the, the words made up a message and what it said was astonishing. It blew them away. We know from other parts in the gospel and from the historical record that rabbis of Jesus' time and afterwards tended to quote each other, like ad nauseum. Um, so a lot of the rabbi's teaching was quoting an older rabbi who thought differently than another rabbi who had opposed another rabbi a few hundred years before, which I know sounds riveting. But um, eventually, you lose the authority in that chain of opinions. Where is God's word under the edifice of opinions about something? What are we talking about again? <laughs> Got to get back to the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comes, they're astonished at his teaching, his word possessed authority, which means his teaching, his message carried authority in and of itself. In and of itself, Jesus' message contained authority. Um, we, we use this word authority sometimes when we're talking about someone who really knows a lot about a subject, right? He's an authority on the subject, okay? And when you meet somebody like that, they may be talking about something that you're interested in in an amateur way, but they're professional, and they start talking about it, and you're like, wow, you're an authority on this subject. Well, Jesus comes in, and he's an authority on the Old Testament. He's an authority. We don't even know what he taught. We just know that they were astonished. They were blown away. I wonder if in Capernaum, I wonder if in the synagogue of Capernaum, they heard better messages. It's a little bit more wealthier town. It's a bigger town, it's a bigger town in, in the region, in the area. It's certainly not Jerusalem, but 
perhaps they had um, a, bit, a little bit more prestige. I don't know, just, just a thought. But when Jesus comes in, they're astonished. And I just love that word. I don't think we use it very often anymore. But they were astonished at his teaching. And one of the takeaways I just, I think is obvious, but I'm just going to say it because sometimes we skip over these things. In, in our lives, are Jesus' words astonishing anymore? Are they astonishing? Some of you have been Christians for a long, long time. Now, some of you have been saved recently. And I've been able to see you and watch your eyes open as you read God's word for literally the first time, the first time you've ever read this story. Have you gone through these passages? But it is hard for us sometimes to keep that astonishment because of familiarity. You know that familiarity breeds contempt often. And so we can have this attitude, some of us Christians, and go, I know this story. I learned it when I was 6, 7, 13, 24. I know this one. Well, good for you. <laughs> um, what, what, what relation does knowing something have to do with accurately living it or putting it into practice? How many times do we know that we're not supposed to do something as we're doing it? Right? I should not be driving this way. I should not be speaking this way. I should not be being lazy this way. We know these things, but knowing them isn't the core issue. Being changed by them is, which takes work on our parts. Are you astonished at God's word? Some of you parents are and maybe in the same uh, life stage as I am, or some of you grandparents are reliving the same life stage as you read to your grandparents. I mean, your grand- some of you are, but to your grandkids, as you read these Bible storybooks, as you read the Bible, then sometimes things seem to click in a different way because you're reading to a, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old. I would encourage you to make sure that you're looking at that and make sure that you relay the astonishment to the children that you're reading to. In your life, in my life, are Jesus' words authoritative or suggestive? Uh, you know, yeah, that's nice, Jesus. That's, that's pretty good. Um, is it crucially important to us that we submit our lives to Jesus' words? Are Jesus' words suggestive or are Jesus' words authoritative? Consider Jesus' own words, his own claim in Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like wise man built his house. Right? This is, this is one of those things, right? Like I sang that song and I was like, boom, right? We're doing all these, all these silly kid songs, but they're built on the truth of God's word. Any, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Then Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, the category is not heard and not heard. The category is everyone in this has heard and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell splat. That's not in the Bible, but that's what we're saying. Great was the fall of it. The key issue is response to God's word, not just hearing. And we may put ourselves in the hearing of God's word all the time. We have access to podcasts 
We have access to, I mean, you could go to a church in the area on Saturday night and hear God's word preached. You could go to a church tonight somewhere else and hear God's word preached. You're here hearing God's word preached. But do we put it in to practice? Now, Jesus moves on to do something, but the authority remains. Point number two in your notes, the Holy One has amazing authority over the demonic. Point number two, the Holy One has amazing authority over the demonic. While Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, verse 33 said, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, that's a very interesting construction. The spirit of an unclean demon. And what some of the scholars think is that interesting way of piecing that together appears nowhere else in the Gospels. But perhaps the audience that Luke is writing for is more Greek and Roman. And so they don't necessarily see the word demon, daimonion, in the Greek and think like, Horns, red, scary, hell, that kind of thing. They think maybe God or demigod or spirit or angelic being. And so Luke says, and I think he's setting a, a, a parad- paradigm for the rest of his book, is that when I say demon, here's what I mean. An unclean spirit. I mean a bad demon. I don't mean an angel. I mean a bad demon. So the Gentile readers would understand that there's no ambiguity here. That This might be a good demon. No, this is a bad demon. This is um, one of Satan, who, we've, who we met a few chapters before, one of Satan's minions doing his work. And so what we have here is an exorcism showdown. Now, there's not going to be any heads spinning around. There's not going to be any weird cinematic effects. What there is going to be is power and authority from the words of Jesus. The demon cries out through the man, through his, using his vocal cords, however that works, and says, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That might mean something like, what are you doing here? Um, It might mean something um, like, uh, um, it sounds weird in English, right? I think that, what have you to do with us? Um, It's basically an an acknowledgement of warfare. It's, it's, It's an acknowledgement of this is a showdown. And then the demon names him, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, In the ancient world, we know from all kinds of texts that there was a lot of belief in magic and folk tales. And so there was a lot of superstition. um, And there's an understanding that we don't have in our modern scientific age um, that demons and spirits were real. And so um, exorcists at the time would try to name the, the person or the spirit in order to have power or authority over them. So it seems like the demon is identifying Jesus not to go... You're not wearing a name tag, but he's identifying Jesus because this is a battle. And he identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth. Not only that, he says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. He's saying, I have the upper hand because I know who you are. And I said it first, the Holy One of God. So he identifies two things, Jesus of Nazareth. And this this Jesus of Nazareth is the Holy One of God. This demon in the spiritual world knows exactly who Jesus is. Now, Jesus has and will continue to somewhat shroud his identity, but this demon um, can see exactly who Jesus is. He identifies him even as the Holy One of God. This unholy, unclean spirit knows that this man is different. He is holy. He is set apart. He is clean. The demon is unclean. And we see that it is not simply enough to know who Jesus is. 
The demons know who Jesus is. It is not simply enough to know, yeah, I know Jesus. The question is not whether you know Jesus. James says, even the demons believe and they shudder. Um, What this means is that we can't settle for mere recognition of Jesus. Jesus is not asking for mere recognition. Jesus is asking for much, much more. Now, uh, he says, have you come to destroy us? That doesn't mean that, like in other stories, there are multiple demons in this man. It may just mean, have you come to destroy our team, (laughs) the demon team? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus rebuked him. Verse 35, he speaks against him and he says, and um, I had one, uh, one commentator said, that if we weren't um, tied to kind of tradition and the niceties of the biblical language, we might translate it something like this. Shut up and get out of there. But of course, we can't have Jesus saying that because then our kids are going to read the Bible and say, Jesus said shut up, so I can say shut up. So we don't have that. It says, be silent, right? Be silent and come out of him. But make no mistake, Jesus is not like being nice here. (laughs) Uh, Jesus doesn't do nice, by the way. Jesus is kind and comforting and loving, and gentle, but he's not nice, okay? Jesus here is actually doing a kindness to the man by telling the demon to be silent and to come out. He doesn't do an incantation. Most exorcists of the time, Jewish exorcists, we have lots of records of these, Jewish exorcists, Greek exorcists, they would have an incantation, they would apply physical matter, they would do all kinds of um, weird dances, they would have um, these long lists of things that they would say in order to do it. Jesus does none of that rigmarole. Jesus says, come out of him. And the demon doesn't stop to consider. The demon comes out of him because he is, Jesus' words are authoritative. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him. And Dr. Luke says, having done him no harm. I love that, that addition by Luke. He has done him no harm. Now, in our world, we don't like to think about demons because that either means it's a horror movie or it's kind of like something that actually we know how to describe. It's some kind of disorder. It's a psychological disorder. Um, I don't think that those two are necessarily all that separate, but we tend to immediately go towards the disorder side of things because that's how we've been raised. That's how we've been trained. And, And we've maybe never seen anything that is explicitly demonic, and so we don't know how to deal with this. But... But just to be clear, we believe in the supernatural, right? We believe in the spirit world. Um, in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 8, John says this, um, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is doing what he came to do. He's destroying the works of the devil. This demon had, whatever word you want to use, Uh, possessed, gained control over this man, and Jesus is freeing him like he said he would in Nazareth. He's come to set at liberty the captives. Can you think of any better example of captivity than a demon-possessed man? With his, his, his lips moving, his tongue working, his lungs working, his diaphragm moving, his vocal cords vibrating, and a demon's voice coming out of this man? Can you think of anything worse than this kind of captivity? Jesus is setting the captives free. He is setting at liberty those who are oppressed. And Jesus does it without harming the man. 
the demon comes out in a somewhat violent fashion, but does the man no harm. Now look at what happens to the people. They've never seen this. If they have seen an exorcism, it didn't look like this. If they've heard of an exorcism, it didn't sound like this. And the people were all, verse 36, amazed. What a day for these people, man. <laughs> They're probably just, okay, all right, that's enough for today. This is, this is a pretty crazy day. They were all amazed and said to one another, notice this, they've seen, they've seen a demon come out of a man, and this is what they say. What is this word, message? Well, it's not a message. It's a demon coming out of a man, right? I mean, there's, there's some physicality here. But they recognize that the operative agent here, the power here, is in the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Because all he did was speak. He didn't do all the things that exorcists did. He didn't do a little dance. He didn't anoint this person. All he said was, get out of there. And they are amazed. And by the way, this happened in church, right? In, in the synagogue? Right, right there in the synagogue. <laughs> You're like, shield your kid's eyes. Ah! This is all happening right there in public. This man is thrown down on the ground. The demon leaves. Can you imagine what would happen if something like that happened today? Right here. I can't. (laughs) What would your lunch conversation be like today? A little bit different than most lunch conversations. (laughs) There's some very interesting uh, Instagram uh, and uh, Facebook updates if that were to happen today. This happened in public. It happened in front of all of them. And then they say, for with, the word again, authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And of course, they lit up their social media feeds in verse 37 and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Their social media was speaking to one another, right? Face to face, right? But this traveled. They're on an international highway, right? So the, the word begins to spread that this Jesus is something different. And the word begins to get out. And this is setting the stage for the next, really, five or six chapters of the book of Luke. What are some takeaways here? Well, one takeaway is just this fantastic quote from C.S. Lewis. I believe it's in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, which you've never read. Um, you should get the Screwtape Letters. Um, Terry, how long ago did you teach through that? Several years ago. Yeah? And you took months to get through the Screwtape Letters in a Sunday school class here. We actually have the dramatized version in the library that the Andy Circus, the guy who does the voice of Gollum, um, does is screw tape in that. And so you can listen to that, you can read that. But he said this in the preface. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or, or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right? Have we seen this? Both sides? Okay, there's a demon in your lawnmower when it won't start. It's probably not a demon. It's probably something going on with the mechanics in your lawnmower. On the other hand, um, we, don't, we don't disbelieve in demons altogether, although we probably most of us live our lives most of the time without thinking about them, right? Um, we need to think about the spirit world a little bit more, I think, um, which, which I don't think means initially going to um, deliverance events and looking into... Um, other books, I think it immediately means to reorient ourselves to what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. There's a lot of crazy stuff about spiritual warfare out there that you shouldn't read and shouldn't look into. You should look at Ephesians 6, where Paul says that our life and death fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, what this means is important. 
What this means is that Republicans or Democrats aren't our primary enemies, okay? North Korea and Iran are not our primary enemies. White supremacists and Antifa aren't our primary enemies. Islamic State is not our primary enemy. Our greatest enemy is much more destructive and deadly than any of those. Because Jesus said in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is Satan, the enemy of God and our enemy as well. And we would be good to have a balanced understanding and view on the demonic. Point number three in your notes. Jesus' healing shows astounding authority over disease. Now, as we move into verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, if it is accurate that they have recognized where Simon's house is, one of the commentators said, it is an eight, ooh, wow. It is an 83-foot walk from the exit of the synagogue to the entrance of Simon's house. Okay? So think about you going home from church today. Okay? Exiting the synagogue and going to Simon's house is 83 feet. If I had gotten here a little earlier, I was actually going to measure how far that was. Um, But, wow, I can barely see that. Um, Here is the spaceship over... um, It looks like a spaceship, okay? Um, over Peter's house, and here's the synagogue. So they walked from the synagogue after this happened. A demon was, a demon-possessed man was healed and delivered, and Jesus taught from the synagogue, and they walked home. Whoop! Not a lot of time to get distracted about what just happened, okay? They're staying on message here when Jesus uh, heals this man, okay? So they get home to Simon's house, and by the way, we haven't met Simon yet. And so it seems like Luke just assumes that the people that he writes to already know who Peter is. They already know who Simon Peter is. And so Simon's just introduced. Simon's actually going to be called in Luke chapter 5. Again, the Gospels um, have different, um, th- different stories that they leave out or that they leave in. And this is one of those places. They go home. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. The ESV is woefully inadequate here in the English. Um, <laughs> she's not ill with a high fever. She's racked by a severe fever. Um, the, the, word is, the word there is not ill. It's hold fast, oppress, seize, attack, distress, torment. She's not sitting, she's not sitting there with a 100.5 degree fever going, I need to take a break. She's in bed because she is deathly ill. So they've just seen this happen in the synagogue and they walk over to the house and Luke the doctor gives us perhaps a prescription It seems that in the ancient world there was low fevers and high fevers, and they separated those into two different things, okay? Um, Jesus, uh, well, they they make an appeal, right? Like, hey, Jesus, um, Simon's mom's mother-in-law is a little sick. Can you come take a look at her? (laughs) Which, if they had just been in the synagogue, they're like, let's let's see this. I mean, like, she's sick. Can Can you heal her? Jesus stands over her, rebukes the fever, similar language to being a demon, okay? rebukes the fever, it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. <laughs> okay, now listen. Again, she doesn't take a Tylenol, okay, and, and have like a washcloth on her head. Okay, she is in dire straits, and moments later, she's in the kitchen getting dinner ready. <laughs> okay? Do, do you understand that? I mean, do you remember the last time you weren't feeling very well, and you're like, ah, let's just order out. Okay? This is worse. This is from the hospital bed, waking up, getting up, and making dinner. 
the immediacy is to show how incredible Jesus' rebuke is over disease. He just says it, and it's gone. It's out of there. And she begins to serve them. Now, this probably, again, 83 feet away from the synagogue, it probably didn't take very long for other people to hear about this, right? Perhaps she had to walk outside to grab some herbs from her garden for the dinner. And they're like, wait, weren't you sick? Looking over the fence, you know? Hey, what happened? Oh, Jesus, he just said a few words, and I'm, I'm feeling great. What is happening? The word is spreading. And in verse 40, watch this. Now, when the sun was setting, why is that important? It's, it's the Sabbath day, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, okay? Can you imagine Capernaum? Can you imagine? I mean, this is a pre-modern era. People are sick. They're injured. They, they, we don't know much about how the body works. Can you imagine they're watching the sun go down with their sick baby, right? They've got grandpa on the stretcher, and they're watching the hills. As soon as the sun goes down, bam, go to Jesus, okay? As soon as they can, the people now are getting to Jesus. When the sun was setting, all those who had... All those, all who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. What a crazy day in Capernaum. It's a much different day than it was in Nazareth, remember? In Nazareth, they were like, wow, look at little Jesus. He's doing a great job. And then he's saying things we don't like and let's throw him off the hill and kill him and he escapes. That's a bad day. This is a much different day in Capernaum. The healing is immediate the healing is diverse. Jesus is not checking a manual to figure out, oh, what's wrong with you? Hmm. That's a much different case than the person I just healed. He is laying his... By the way, he doesn't do a group thing either, right? It's not like there's a crowd outside and he goes, ah, y'all be healed. And he could have done that, right? I mean, it seems likely that he could have done that. But Jesus lays his hands, he touches every sick person. And he heals them. He takes individual time for each person and heals them. Jesus is compassionate. He's concerned for your welfare. And he's patient. Can you imagine that? They don't have big houses. Bring in the next person. Okay. Healed. Bring in the next person. Healed. Bring in the next baby. Healed. Bring in grandma. Healed. Some of you have been in the hospital. Some of you have visited people in the hospital. It's not an intimate place, right? It's usually not a warm, fuzzy place. So touch is really important for sick people, isn't it? Just a a reassurance, holding a hand, touching a shoulder, pushing someone's hair back, right? It's just the the touch. Because all the other touches in the hospital are not intimate. Well, they are, but, right? it's It's not comfortable. It's not... It's not desirable, right? They stick a needle in you here and poke something else in you here and wake you up in the middle of the night and take your temperature again. Jesus, by the way, this would be a fantastic uh, 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 physician's address, right? I don't know who the doctor was in town, but he's out of a job. Now, they also bring some demon-possessed people in verse 41. And they come out of the pe- out of the people they're possessed, crying. But this, can you imagine? There's like multiple people possessed in this town, and they cry out, "You are the Son of God!" But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. They're the only ones that seem to know that He is the Christ, which is interesting. 
which probably isn't your, the next endorsement that Jesus wants, right? Like, well, how do we know you're the Christ? Well, the demons keep saying I am. Eh, probably don't want that to be the case, right? That's not really a helpful um, uh, endorsement, okay? Um, by the way, there is a, there's a, a distinction made here between demon possession and, and sickness, right? So while there could be a connection between demon possession and sickness, they're not necessarily so, which in some parts of our world, all sickness is due to spirits, right? Or due to you not having enough faith. Or due to you being cursed. Right? But, but what seems to happen here is that there's a distinction. Dr. Luke makes a distinction between some people get sick. They, they get sick. And some people are possessed by demons. And Jesus has power over both. He has authority over both. And so the legend begins, Right? <laughs> The, the word begins to spread. This is the montage part of the movie where there's people talking in other places. Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Right? The word begins to spread. And our last, our last point, uh, point number four, the heart of Jesus' mission is the message. The heart of Jesus' mission is the message. And this is so important because this is crazy stuff. I mean, your imagination can run wild with these things. And you can, and you can see how people become obsessed with the supernatural. Because this is cool. I want to see that. I, I have someone. How many of you have someone in your life who's sick that you wish you could bring them to church on Sunday and the guy could say, be better? Anybody have someone like that in your life? Some of you are sitting in this room. However, it is really clear here that Jesus is not a circus show. He's not going to start setting up a booth to take tickets to make some money to expand his platform. Jesus' mission is the message. How do we know that? Verse 42, when it was day, he departed. Do you think, perhaps, that the night before, when grandma got healed, okay, that daughter was like, the uncle who lives in Tiberias on the other side, like, he's got a really bad sickness too. Let's go grab him and get him to Jesus tomorrow morning. I mean, wouldn't you do that? If you knew someone that lived within a day's walk or something, go grab Uncle Nathaniel is sick, all right? Like, I mean, like, go, go grab Aunt Dorcas. We've got to find somebody. Bring him over here. Get him, get him to Jesus to heal. And Jesus leaves. <laughs> they show up at the doctor's office and nobody's there. Where is he? He departed and went into a desolate place. Now, I don't know where the desolate place is, but this is modern-day Galilee. There are so many, I mean, there's tiny little towns in Galilee. There's so much open space to, to, to hike, to walk, to disappear, to climb, to pray. Today there is. Imagine back then Jesus goes to a desolate place and he's gone and the people sought him. They send out the posse. He can't leave. We need him. They came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Think about Nazareth. They want to chuck him off the cliff. Capernaum. They don't want him to go anywhere else. Stay here. If this is your new HQ, you stay here because this is going to be great for business. I'm sure no one thought that. No one wanted to use Jesus for that. But he said to them, notice this, verse 43. I, what's the next word? Must. Day. In the Greek. It is necessary. It is compulsory. It conveys a strong sense of urgency. Two-thirds of the musts in the Gospels are in Luke. Luke is showing us 
Jesus must do this because this is why he came. Why did he come? I must exercise every demon in Israel. I must start a massive healing ministry. We're going to build an arena somewhere in Galilee and people are going to come from everywhere so that I can heal all the diseases. No, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Hint, hint. Capernaum doesn't have a monopoly on Jesus. I need to go, I need to go other places. Why? For I was sent for this purpose. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to proclaim good news. He healed people. He cast out demons to validate his authority to tell people the good news. His good news was believable because he validated it by the the signs that he did. But he came to preach the good news. Verse 44, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. One obvious takeaway is that just as proclaiming the message was the heart of Jesus' mission, so proclaiming his message is the heart of our mission. It is good that we can't heal and cast out demons like Jesus could because we would be distracted because we would feel really good about being awesome. Jesus left us with a message proclaiming that he is awesome. It is clear that we are not very awesome. We prove that all the time. Our mission is to proclaim his message. Have you heard that quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi? Preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. That's a cop-out, and it's not biblical, and it's pretty wimpy. The gospel is good news. You proclaim it by speaking. Now, you, you need to live your life to validate the good news that you're preaching, right? To not place a stumbling block in front of those who hear. However, preaching the gospel requires speaking, writing, emailing, okay? It requires words, okay? It requires words. No one goes to Sequoia National Park, walks up to these gigantic ancient trees and says, I bet a man was born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, went to Capernaum, died on the cross. No one does that. Now they might say, they might say, someone had to have made this. But they can't get to the gospel from the bark of a tree. They can only get to the gospel when they hear words. Which is why the reformers put the Bible into the language of the people so the people could hear God's word. They couldn't be saved by watching a bunch of guys mumble something in Latin on stage and do something with a bread and some wine. That couldn't save them. What saved them was Jesus' authoritative words. Which is why Jesus, at the end of his life, at the end of the book of Matthew, he commissions his followers to make disciples by proclaiming a message. That's the point. Millions, billions, have heard the words of Jesus and they've heard not suggestions, but summons. Come to me. Come to me. Jesus said to Martha, in the book of John, we'll end with this. He said to her, 
listen to this statement. Speaking of astonishing and amazing, amazing. I am the resurrection and the life to a woman whose dead brother was in a tomb. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he has the audaciousness to say this. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But he said he was going to die. <laughs> Do you believe this? That's what Jesus said to Martha, and that's what I leave you with today. Do you believe this? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then, by the way, after this, he raised a dead man out of a tomb. Why? To validate his words. Jesus didn't just throw words around. He said, I'm the resurrection of life. Watch this. Lazarus, come out. Do you believe this? That's the most important question you could answer today. Do you believe this? Now, do you know this? Now, do you recognize this? Do you put your faith and your trust, your lean, do you lean into this? That's going to hold you up. That's going to matter when you stand before Jesus, this same Jesus at the end of days, and he sits on a throne and judges you. It will matter very much if you believe this. I hope that today you would consider that. Be amazed, be astonished at this word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that's been kept for us for 2,000 years, preserved, passed on, translated faithfully so that we might hear the words of eternal life, that we might see in our mind's eye as we read these words, as we hear these words, what Jesus did. I pray, Lord, for those of us who have been Christians for quite a while, that we would not grow callous and numb to this. These are amazing, astonishing words. And Lord, we, we might feel really pumped up right now, but tomorrow morning the alarm clock is going to go off way too early. And we have so much to do. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit, impress these things on our hearts. Help us to talk about them so that we might go this week and figure out what this means. In Jesus' name, amen.